Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? G'day. Nice to have you tuning in to episode 54 of The Howie Games. This week we come to you from Bathurst, home of Australia's greatest racetrack, a circuit this week's guest has performed some of his greatest feats on. His name is Craig Lowndes. Craig is without a doubt the most positive, warm, engaging athlete I've ever dealt with. Win, lose or draw, the man's demeanour never seems to change. He's always ready with a smile and a kind word to everyone, and I mean everyone. Always the last to finish signing autographs, the bloke is close to perfect, even according to his wife, Lara. What caught your eye about this uh, lad? Do you really need me to explain that? I'm biased. He's a good-looking rooster, oh, you know. He's got a Richard sort of gears about Yeah, he does well, have the Richard gear. He does, 100%. Close to perfect, I said. Close. Now, I must say, I'm the critical one of you in car parks. You <laughs> can't park to save himself. I hate car parks. He's not six times. He can't park his car. He can park in a pit lane, no problems. Right. Pull up right on grid, no dramas, millimetre perfect. Put him in a supermarket car park, wow. I get lost. But you've got to commit. Yeah, That's right. the thing. I'm too nice. <laughs> you are. That is. Yeah, that, yeah, exactly. You've got to commit. Craig shocked many in July this year when he made the following announcement. Uh, good morning, everyone, and thank you for coming. You might be getting a sense of why we're all here. Um, but I'm here today to announce that uh, I will be retiring from full-time driving in the Virgin Australian Supercars Championship at the end of this season. I've always said there's always been two factors that keep me inside the race car, one being motivated to get up and doing what I love, and the other one being, when still being competitive. For me, nothing's changed. Although my current contract with Triple Eight finishes in another 18 months' time, both Roland and I have come to the decision that this will be my last full-time drive uh, in a supercar. I've always said that Bathurst 2006 was the most emotional and toughest um, race that I've ever done in my career, Uh, but I can say with a heavy heart this has been the hardest decision that myself and the team have had to make. This ep was recorded in conjunction with Network 10 at Craig's Place in Queensland, where he thought it would be fun for the two of us to go mountain biking. The kid just loves to race. You know, racing car drivers are always wanting to be on the same equipment as their team. Well, for a start, I haven't got one of these. What does that do? Rear shock. No, you've got a hard tail, so you got, right. uh, that's good. That, everything that that wheel does, right. your backside's going to feel. Right. Your frame looks to be... Carbon. Carbon. Mine's... Aluminium. Right, so that's not helping me either. That's heavy. Right. What, what are all these buttons you've got that I apparently don't have? <laughs> well, you've got all your, obviously your brakes. So right. Got. I've got those. Your gear changes, which I've got. Right. But I've got uh, a rock shock. Um, so I can adjust my seat up and down. Can I do that? Uh, you can, but you have to do it manually. <laughs> As I go. <laughs> and I can lock my front uh, my front forks out uh, to uh, to climb hills. Right. So be fair to say you're the number one driver in the team. Uh, yeah, with this team, I am. <laughs> All right, but you've go. got a cup holder, and I don't. <laughs> As I alluded to at the start, Lounsey is the world's nicest bloke. He is also a three-time V8 Supercar Series champion and a six-time Bathurst winner, possibly even a seven-time. By the time you're listening, enjoy Craig Lowndes, OAM. So when you search and then you find and know just where to go and thoughts that once used to cloud your mind. You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I 
Come on, children, tread with me. We want to reach Mount Zion. Craig, wonderful to see you. Thanks for inviting us to your palatial Queensland residence. <laughs> Motorsport's been pretty good to you, hasn't it? Well, it has, and I think I've been part of it for a long journey, and I think that um, along the way you've got to be smart about it too because you never know how long or how short your career will be. Or, um, and, of course, I remember when I first got involved in motorsport and I first got paid to be part of motorsport, it was like it was Christmas all over. Like We finally got broke, broke into something that I've always dreamed about. What was that first paycheck, can you remember? Uh, it was HRT, 94, 94. Um, it wasn't a lot, um, but it was, it was, I was also doing my apprenticeship as a motor mechanic. So it was like I was getting double paid. So I, I was happy, I, I was delighted. <laughs> Did you see it and think, wow, they're gonna pay me to race a car? Um, well, at that time I was just more in, in, intent and keen to be part of the team and, and actually just drive a car and, and be part of the whole organisation. And then all of a sudden it was like, it moved from, from that side of it, like, well, now we want to do a contract with you. It's like, oh, okay, great, this is awesome. <laughs> and then I remember, because Jeff Gretsch uh, was running the team at the time and is still around now, that he actually came to mum and dad's place at the time and sat us down and said, look, you know, we are serious. We want Craig to come be part of the team as the enduro driver or part of the enduro driver. Um, and that was, uh, that was for me, was, was the first sort of beginnings of anything and everything that, uh, you know, we were involved in. We'll get right back to the start, but you are now one of the most recognisable Australian athletes that we have. What's it like doing everything you do and people know you, whether it's going shopping or sorting out your boat or going down the street for a coffee and everyone wants a little piece of Craig Lowndes? Um, sometimes it, it, it's... It's difficult, um, you know. When we go shopping, and I say we, Lara and I go shopping, you know, sometimes she just leaves me in the car and says, "I'll just go in." Because if something's just going to be a quick in and out, we know that's going to be like at least a half an hour. So it's and we're lucky where we live, and and everyone around the area here knows. We pop into the shopping centre, or we go and do something, or we go out for dinner, or whatever. Like people know we live in this area. It's the people that probably either visit or come through or pass through or whatever it is. There's sort of more of a an attraction. And I think that uh, really for us, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a great area. Like, you know, we've got great neighbours. Uh, you know, it's, for us, we, we live in a, we, we're not in a gated area, but we've got, you know, obviously two neighbours either side and uh, they're very protective. Uh, we've got a long driveway that, well, a common driveway. And, uh, you know, we all know, or we all ring each other if something comes down that's strange, a courier or anything else. And, and uh, but, you know, we've been quite lucky. Um, I've adapted to it and I think it probably almost stems back to the Brock days of, of just um, accepting what it is. You know, you, you can't have one without the other. What did Brocky teach you in respect to the way to treat your fans? Because I get to work on a lot of sports and I see a lot of athletes and I've had this discussion with you before. I haven't seen anyone that treats their fans as well as you do. And I don't just say that because you're sitting here, mate. It's quite extraordinary the time you give to your fans. Well, the fans are the backbone of motor racing, and it was the first thing he always said to me. Like, you know, without fans, we don't go racing. Um, without racing, we don't have a job. So it's for me, it's really simple. It, fans pay good money to come and see good racing, but at the same time, come and interact. Like, we're one of the most accessible athletes racing categories around the world. Um, you know, you can stand at the back of the garage, and we'll have to go in and out of the garage at certain times, and people can touch 
talk, get things signed, whatever. And I think it's, it's having that mutual respect of, of them there being supportive of you, but at the same token, you be supportive of them. And of course, we've changed manufacturers, we've been back and forth. Uh, you know, there the, the have been fans that, that uh, not hate me, but I think dislike obviously some of the decisions and choices we've made but mm. but that's that's part of the passion about it you know you go to Bathurst and it's, it's you still have that that old rivalry Ford and Holden battle up the hill like and, it, and it's it'll be there forever because it's a DNA of what the motorsport's all about but Brock's always um, been sort of fair with everyone doesn't matter who you are uh, what color you stand for um, it doesn't it, him for him it's just a fan and I think maybe I've taken a lot of that on board um, I've been pretty good at being sort of myself, not being a Peter Brock protege, but the same token, there's a lot of me that I do and what I do are very similar to what Brock did. And I think I did learn a lot from that side of it as well as working with him and, and driving with him uh, that sort of have served me well, especially in some of the years that have been really lean in, in performances, mm. because you know, you're performing well, everyone wants to know. It's when you're not performing well, where you really need that support and, and I suppose a bit of guidance to keep going and, and to back yourself. And then once the performance comes back, everything flips over. Everything's easy when you're winning. It's when you're not winning, it's hard. How do you react when you see the other form of athlete, of which there are many, that don't give to their fans? Frustrated. You, right. You'd see it a lot. Yeah, frustrated. Because yeah. at the end of the day, um, you know, we, we've been to, you know, tennis uh, matches, not necessarily cricket, football maybe a little bit, but when you see an athlete that's so good at what they do, they're very talented, but then they become arrogant and, and basically in a belief of their own little bubble, uh, whether that's themselves, whether they've got management guidance that don't crack that nut to, to sh see what they look like. I'm sure in time they'll look back on what they've done and, and hopefully they'll see that they've, that they've been basically just embarrassing themselves because it's... You've got a gift, whatever sport you do, but at the end of the day, people look up to you because of that gift. And giving back for me is always what it's been. And, and whether that's now working with you know um, younger generation drivers coming through, and um, even you know people criticise me a little bit for giving a lot of information to Jamie when he first joined the team, but that's who I am. I'm not going to change that. Have you ever yourself had to be pulled back? Has there ever been a career where you got swept up in who you were or not? Uh, I'm sure there is, has been, there is. Um, I think that's probably, the, the kick for me was when I went to, went to Europe in 97. You know, we had an unbelievably perfect 96, won everything, set new records. Um, and then obviously the, the, the bigger picture was to go do Formula One, went to Europe, had a teammate in Juan Pablo Montoya, and then I think I realised that uh, you know not everything's rosy or not everything's going to go your way. Mm. Um, you have to fight for things, and I think that really for me was that was the big kicker um, to go to a different country, drive a different category, different teammate who basically had no respect. Um, he just wanted to win races, and look, good on him. He was talented. He's, he's done what he's done, but for me, I think that was a big eye opener of, of uh, basically down to earth get your feet on the ground again and, and work harder. And, and since then, maintain that, that work ethic to, you know, you can't take anything for granted. We'll get to that, but let's go way back to the start. Little Lounsey, what was Little Lounsey's background? What were your mum and dad all about? Uh, uh, mum was a great mum, still is. 
Uh, Dad was a mechanic. Uh, his background was uh, he did his apprenticeship under Harry Firth, who was who went on to, to create the Holden dealer team, the mm-hmm. HCT. Dad did his apprenticeship under Harry, worked at in the dealership team, and built numerous race cars for Brock, um, Colin Bond. Um, and so for me, the DNA was probably there. I grew up, uh, I loved two wheels. I raced dirt bikes when I was eight, um, had uh, too many crashes. Uh, and I, I do remember that, you know, we, we got to a point where dirt bike racing was a passion. It still is. I still ride dirt bikes. Um, but it gravitated to four wheels in go-karts. And I think at the age of nine, ten, we went into go-karts. And I think that was also... Uh, Dad was better pleased or more pleased with that because it was more down his path or the direction he would, he'd been in. And uh, from that point on, it was not looking back. And, and I remember growing up, you know, until I was 16, racing go-karts. My mum would take me at times when Dad was away or my brother would. I've got an older brother. Um, Greg would take me away. I remember going down in Geelong one time doing the you know race down in Geelong, and um, you know we, we parked up in a hotel room, and uh, we actually unloaded the go kart off the back of the car and put it into the hotel room on the stand because we we're paranoid of someone robbing it or pinching it overnight. Geelong, fair enough. In Geelong, <laughs> and um, and then put it back on the car, and we went racing. But um, I think as we got to the age of sort of the teen, sixteen, that was when. For me, Dad was at a point where we sat down and said, look, we can either stay in go-karts for the rest of your life or now we can move on and, and look at bigger and better things. And literally at that point, it was like, yes, like I wanted to keep continuing that program or that, that path. And so we sold all the go-kart parts, um, bought, a, bought an old 85 Van Diemen, and um, we went racing. So that was the next phase. That was the, probably the first phase of car racing for me. Go-karts were the fun, hobby interest loved it had met great friends which we still have um, in that era uh, but when we went to formula ford that was the first big step into the stage of supercar well, the touring cars back then we were a support act to them and it opened up my eyes and i still remember running around the back of sandown winton uh phillip island uh even the Mal- uh, the adelaide grand prix which when they ran back then, so we ran the formula ford over there and, uh, you know, sort of seeing all the touring cars, Brock's, the Johnson's, you know, um, everyone, you know, Glenn Seaton, Mark Scaife, um, you know, the, those guys were around at the time when I was going, well, I'm, I'm sort of now back at stage one. Mm. They're, they're at their pinnacle and, uh, you know, hoping one day we can be there. Were you one of those kids that was naturally talented? It's hard to say. I, Scaife's made a comment. Dad and a few others have said, yes, I've got natural talent. And I remember Dad, even in, in motorbike days, um, I, I would like to hope that we could have gone further in motorbikes. I, as I said, I've broken arms and collarbones and all sorts of parts of my body on, on two wheels. How did Mum and Dad handle that? Uh, they were okay. It's all part and parcel of, right. of riding dirt bikes. Right. Um, but in touch wood, um, although the accident I had, the rollover in 99, which I tore ligaments, I didn't, I've never broken a bone in four wheels or a car. So I think, you know, even in motorbike days, I remember going out to uh, Broadford. There was a motocross, that was our club track. And there was a straight and there was a, there was a left and a right boom. And I kept going, driving over, the, riding over the boom. I, I just mentally... Don't know, struggled together, and basically, Dad looked at me and said, "You ride over that one more time. I'm selling your bike. That's it. It's all over." Of course, I didn't after that. No. So he was pretty hard and fast about what we did. Even then, we migrated into go karts. He would stand on the track, and he'd, you know, we'd talk about apexes and and entry lines and brakes and everything. And 
and he would literally stand on the track and I'd, you'd make me drive around him <laughs> and to learn and understand and picture where I needed to position and place the go-kart for that particular corner or if it led onto a second corner, think about that. So for me, I, he taught me a lot uh, about the mechanical side of it, uh, the engineering side of it, uh, hence why I become a motor mechanic by trade, but uh, understanding the the mechanics of, of how to drive a car and what to look for when you go to a brand new track and, and try to, 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 to basically cut it up into pieces to really notify where you need to position the car and get the best out of it. Was there a plan B? Obviously, you were going down the motor mechanic path. What, what were the reports saying about a 15-year-old Craig at school? Craig is a what? Um, I was, to be honest, I was good at maths, um, good at sports. I was okay at English, and I struggled, and, and, uh, and I, I joke about it at the time. And, and parts of me, are, I reckon, are dyslexic. You know, um, D's and B's and, and F's and J's, uh, G, G's and J's, um, numbers really? every now and then I, I put backwards. Like, I, I think that, that I have got a bit of, you know, that side of it in me. And, and I'm probably, I'm pretty good at hiding that side. Um, How do you hide that in a race team environment? Um, for me, being part behind the steering wheel is basically my zone. Like, I, I control that and that's all good for me. Um, it's when you go to get into a boardroom and you obviously you know work about how to make a car go fast and everything else. And I think I've learned over the years that uh, how to work through that that period or that side of a race weekend and work very close with an engineer, like I've done now this year. And and yeah, look it, it, for me, it's 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 been a, a working pro, like a, a working progress and, and keep continuing to work at it. Can you read a, a book? Oh yeah, I can read a book. Right. Yeah, yeah, I can read a book and all that sort of stuff. But right. it's just that sometimes it, it's just and and Lara, you know, has picked up on it because she's known people that are dyslexic, and and put things backwards every now and then. And I think it's probably when I get more tired that I do that. Um, but you know, I'm good at hiding that side of it. Um, and I think, to be honest, I didn't really read or write a lot as a teenager. Um, which you know, I, I try to make sure that you know, my two kids do that because it's it's something that uh, I see a little bit more in Chile than I do Levi. Levi's pretty competent in the English side of it. Then Chile's like me in the sense of the English side of it, accepts it, doesn't like it, but will do it. And uh, but but her like mass is very strong, which is what was for me. So that's why I see a little bit of a similarity in that side of it. But it's um, did you have to sort of hide your way through it at school or did you um, talk to your teachers or was it just... I, I was probably, to be honest, if you look, if you talk to any of my students at school and my classes, I was probably one of the dumber ones in English um, to a point where I got tutored and, you know, I had a tutor come in, mum got a tutor in and, and helped me and I think at that time it was more of the, the concentration level. Like I was too hyperactive as also a child, mm. too keen just to get outside and do something, kick a football, go out, ride my push bike, ride a motorbike... I was always an active kid, so for me to sit still and, and write something or read something was probably for me boring. Um, but then, you know, as I've got older and later in life, you know, you know, I've sat down and read books. Uh, you know, so for me, it, it's it's not necessarily being dumb enough not to read a book. It's just probably the the attitude and the and the the, the attention span of sitting there long enough to read a book. And that was probably my my problem as a child. I don't think dumb. You know, you've used the word dumb a couple of times. I'm not sure that's the right word to, to describe it, Lounsey. Oh, well, for me it, it is because of, of, you know, when I, again, when I was in class, there was two or three of us 
um, that we struggled out of the whole class to, to, you know, we all had to read paragraphs or, you know, parts of a book at a time. And in the three of us, it, we were the worst in our class. Um, and, and, you know, not to say that, I, yeah, I was dumb, but I was just, I probably struggled with that side of it at that time. And as I've got older, I've definitely got better at it. And I think through motorsport and everything else, because I love it so much, you know, you have to write debrief notes. Mm. You have to sit down and write um, you know, problems with the car or you have to then look at last year's, you know, history of what went wrong with the car. So for me, I think through motorsport is actually, because it's an interest to me, I've learnt then to, to like reading and writing more than I did when I was a child because all I want to do is go out and kick a footy and or play cricket or do something else, not actually sit at a table and do my, do my homework. Back to Craig in a moment. Next week's guest, in some ways, is a bit of a man of mystery. A magician on the footy field, rarely sighted off it. Mid-season this year, one of the most exciting players the AFL has ever seen, Cyril Rioli, walked away from the game. For the first time, next week, you'll hear why. I'm pretty quiet. Like I don't. I just. I just sort of do my own thing, live my own life. Um, been playing footy for so long. I'm just looking forward to. Not the downtime, it's going to obviously got to start working again and things are going to be different, but I think just being comfortable and being back home and having everything everything there and everything set up, everything back back there, it's 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 such, I don't know, you, you, you sort of feel complete being back there for sure. So, you know, me and the wife have been really spending a lot of time together and, and really enjoying just being back home. That's the little genius, Cyril, next week on the Howie Games. Back to Lounsey. You have to help me out. Um, I'm no great motorsport historian, Lounsey, but I guess in a lot of people's eyes, you burst onto the, the public consciousness at Bathurst, which would make sense now you've won it six times. In 1994, overtaking John Bow in the final yep. stages of the race, and I I was listening to the commentary on YouTube <laughs> last night. Oh, no one's ever passed there before. Mm. Um, but from all reports, there's a bit of a story to your first legendary moment that maybe it wasn't as all it seemed, that particular pass. Oh, I still reckon, like, that particular moment, I wasn't planned to be in the car. So the team, unfortunately, the way that the day had panned out, I had to get back in the car because Brad Jones was the lead driver of, of that car. He'd, he'd done his time. Unfortunately, he had done too much time in the middle part of the day to finish the race. So I had to get back in the car and finish it. So for me, even if I go back further, leading into that weekend, I was absolutely, you know, crapping myself. Obviously being part of a major team like HRT, to be part of a full car or four driver squad, two cars, and uh, to be basically the anchor man for, for Brad Jones, who was, you know, was mm. winning races and doing stuff at that time. Uh, I struggled in the lead up. I was, uh, from memory, a second and a half to two seconds off the pace. I'm sure, no doubt, that Brad would have been talking to the team thinking they've made a massive mistake in, in getting me to drive the car. I, I, I probably would have, looking from the other side. Um, and it wasn't until that moment where Brock sat me down and then talked me through the whole lap of Bathurst, from turn one to last corner, where to position the car, what to look for, what crack, that grade at the top of the hill, um, going over Skyline, not breaking too much down into the dipper because you're going to end up in the wall. To get to Forest Elbow, there's a, there's actually still is a, you know, the inside wall, there's two joints of concrete, which it makes a bit of a, bit of like a, a V or a crack. Look for that to get then on the throttle to drive it off Forest Elbow, get down into the chase because I've never driven Bathurst without the chase. Went to Bathurst many times when it was a proper straight. So Brocky took you through the whole thing? He sat me down, went from turn one to the last corner. Huh. And from that moment on, which was early in the week in practice, because he, he could see I was struggling, um, 
we picked up that sort of second and a half of that sort of two second bracket. And then for the rest of it was just come with uh, confidence, um, attitude, and then the belief that we could do it. And, and so then move forward, I was, as I said, wasn't supposed to be in the car at the end of that, that race. And then thrust into that position, um, my manager, David Siegel, who was actually working, I think it was working as a publisher or doing the media side of it for Dick Johnson Racing at the time. He tells me stories that you know, he remembers the conversation between Bowie and the team going, who's, this, who's the car behind us? And they said, you know, it's Craig Lowndes, the rookie. He didn't think that I was the threat. He thought that the Tony Longhurst and uh, I can't remember who was behind him, I think it might have been Alan Jones or someone else, was more of a threat than me. And then, of course, when I got to the back of John Bow at the restart and I got that big toe up mountain straight, and I still reckon that he being on the dirty side, he broke a bit early. I think I broke a little bit later than I'd normally done, mm -hmm. and, but it, it worked. Like, we passed him up turn two, up into, up into the um, cutting. I mean, you couldn't get much closer than that. 7.83. Oh, he's he's and he's got it! He's put one on him up the hill. I didn't think it was possible. Hold racing team. Plenty of cheers and clapping the hands. This kid is dynamite. How many times I don't think a rookie's ever turned up at Bathurst, apart from a few of the international drivers who have come in and done this well. Phenomenal effort from Craig. And I remember, and I still vague, like, remember, like, the crowd roaring because it was the old traditional Ford and Holden battle. You know, Ford had been dominant all day. The Holden, the General Motors had, had started leading the race. And I remember the crowd roaring and, and it lasted for a lap and a half until I got a back marker down in the last corner. Bowie got me. I tried to do the switchback didn't work and then he went on to win the race. But. There's a lot at stake here. There's a hundred grand to win this race. Lance comes down under brakes. JB, same oh, time. Oh no, no, he mustn't. He couldn't have looked. He didn't look, but that's racing. Now John Will have got a faster run out of that corner. Yep. He may try and capitalise here. He's probably got a few more revs on board. He comes up the inside, no. side by side under brakes and JB will sneak through. They both lock the inside left tire. Oh, he was unsettled by that back marker. That's oh. very unfortunate. Well, that won't worry, Craig. I tell you, he has matured, and JB knows that this 015 car is no pushover, and the kid driving it is not to be uh, put out because he'll come again. But what I didn't know at the time, because about three laps to go, our fuel light had come on, so I had to, because I started to get back, you know, under control again, thinking maybe I can chase him down. And the team said, look, you just got to bring it home now. You know, the fuel light's on. We've got, I think it was two or three laps to go at the time. You know, you've just got to back off. We got a big enough lead on, on position three. But what I didn't know is Bowie was in the same position. Mm -hmm. So if I'd pursued him for long enough, he would have had to yield because they were running out of fuel as well. And he's only told me that later in life. And it was really one of those moments now you'd look back and go, only if. We could have won our first Bathurst, but look, we, we were on the podium, we were second, and that's really what kick-started my career. So much so that 95 went past, 96, you won the championship in your first full crack at it. So you're the king, you were the kid. It was everyone in motorsports talking about Craig Lowndes. One more corner to come up, as Lowndes will get on that middle pedal, break and swing on to pit straight. The crowd cheering him on, 46,000 fans, he gives a wave. And he points it up toward the chequered flag and Craig Lowndes wins the 1996 AMP Bathurst 1000. And surprise, surprise, the crew are ecstatic. All of a sudden you went to Europe. What was that decision process, mate? Because you were the superstar of the 
V8 world then and you tossed it in to pursue a Formula One dream, I presume, which a lot of people wouldn't even realise. Uh, well, my whole upbringing up until that point of driving the car in 94 was all single-seaters. And that's... Um, and even um, at Dad's workshop when I was doing Formula Ford, Norm Beachy used to bring his Impala in to get a dyno. We had, Dad had a chassis dyno and we used to dyno it and everything else. And I remember Norm saying, even at an early stage, like, what do you want to do later in life? Like, what's your career path? And I said, Formula One. And, and that was really my mindset, even at that early stage. So for me, the 94, 5 and 6 was a stepping stone back to that single-seater program. But the problem was, is in those three years, I'd adapted to that driving style of those cars, of a touring car. So I remember going over at the end of 96 to Europe, testing with um, David Sears in Supernova. It was in Snedderton. It was cold. It always is cold over there. Mm. Um, in a Formula 3000. And I'd done a half, a half a dozen laps or so, come into the pits, and he pulled me aside and said, you've been driving touring cars? And I said, yes. He said, well, I can tell by your style. So he already knew at that point, at the early parts of that test day, that I, was, I had some bad habits for a single-seater, but not for a touring car. So um, we did the test with Supernova. He seemed to be impressed. Tom Walkinshaw was my manager at the time. Um, we, I sat down with Tom at um, Arrows back then, the Formula One team. He said... Uh, look, we, we want to try and get a program together to obviously bring you back. We need to do another test. We are on our way to Jerez to do another test with Supernova. Unfortunately, on the way down, well, the transport on the way down through France got in a blockade. It was some sort of, um, uh, some sort of uh, political agenda that French had at the time. So the transporter was getting caught up in the whole mess of things. So then, then all of a sudden, Tom said, we were going to send you to, um, uh, to Budapest and do a test with another race team, but in Formula 3000, the same car with RSM Marco. So I went there, did the test, um, and, my, and, the t and the other driver that was doing the test at the time was Ricardo Zonta, who went on to drive... Brazilian. And, ..and Brazilian. And again, we returned back to England, sat down with Tom. Tom said, well, at that time, you know, who do you think is the better choice? And I said, and I remember saying to him, I said, well, I, there's really not a lot of difference, but it really up to you. you, you know, in a sense, he was my manager. Whatever deal you can struck, it's probably going to be the right one. I then returned back to Australia at the end of 96. We did a big campaign media launch saying that we're going to return to Europe in 97 head up a, a, you know, a, a car in, in Formula 3000 in, the, in that sort of Christmas period. Um, David Sears at Supernova said to Tom, if I'm going to take the Aussie on, I want a two-year program. Set two-year program. I think he's got ability, but we need a two-year program. Where then RSM Marco said, no, 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 we'll take him on and you know, we'll do a 12-month program. So Tom goes, no, we'll do the RSM Marco. So hence hindsight, Supernova would have been a far better option for me. Yep. Um, but, of course, I was being led a little bit by Tom. We went back to Europe at the start of 97, uh, lived in Graz in Austria. I arrived uh, at the airport. Someone was supposed to pick me up. No one was there. Finally got a cab that could talk English enough to get to the, get to the, race, tri the race team in town. Hmm. Um, what I didn't know at the time is that the team and the personnel of the team from the end of 96 to the start of 97, they'd all left. 
So at the end of 96, they were all English workers. So I could communicate no problem. But then, of course, being 97, completely wiped out. Um, so there was a couple of Aussies, uh, Matty Boniface, who was part of supercars later in life. Um, he came over to be mechanic. Um, Paul, uh, who was a truck driver from uh, WA, he, came, he was there at the time. And that was the only two English people that I I'd, I'd, was part of the team. Right. The engineer was Austrian, didn't speak a lot of English. Uh, there was only one engineer to, to engineer two cars. Um, first then met Juan Pablo Montoya. He wanted a car in a certain way. And again, because I was in a different, different um, probably at that point, different level in a sense of what I wanted out of a race car and a setup. Um, but because one engineer, they set both cars up the same. I struggled for the first half of 97. And look for the white car up on two wheels. That's the Australian Craig Lyons. He hits Jason Watt. Watt goes backwards, back across the circuit. And as he comes backwards, he contacts Kurt Mollikens. And it wasn't until basically a, a help phone call um, for help with a uh, gentleman, unfortunately now has just passed away, um, Alan McCall. He was a Kiwi, New Zealander. I'd met him previously when I went to New Zealand in 95 and uh, to race a Formula Holden over there. He actually flew over, he and his wife flew over to Europe uh, on his own, basically, funds uh, and engineered me for the second half of 97. And at that point, everything for my life turned around. You know, we had, we had a fourth at, uh, in Anna in Sicily. Um, we were running, uh, I think, in the top six from memory at Helsinki, which is a street race, but then the drive shaft broke, unfortunately. Um, for that. So I ended up, I think from memory, 17th in that championship year. And Where was Montoya? Montoya was second. He, he ended up second that year. He won it in 98. And uh, I remember sitting at, uh, in, uh, down at Jerez in uh, Spain with um, Tom, Tom Walkinshaw, and basically said, look, you know, what's, what's next year? Look, what's the program? He uh, turned around and said, well, if you can find the funds, more than happy for you to come back. But if not, well, sort of bad luck. How much? At that point, I think we had to raise a million dollars, Australian. <laughs> so a lot of money, obviously, for that point to, uh, to, for me to find it on my own. And uh, hence why 97 uh, ended up the way it was. I returned in 98, 99, won the championship, 98, 99. And, uh, and then uh, basically uh, in 2000 was, was my last year with HRT, which then, then my direction was basically I was here for then that point and uh, become a touring car driver. I ask this with the greatest possible respect, Craig, what was it like to give up your dream? Obviously you had something else fantastic to go to, but you grew up wanting to be a Formula One driver and you had to give it up. Um, I'm still disappointed that we didn't have that second year because I think that second year was like any, if you look at any, any athlete in any sport, you can never excel into, a, into that level, whatever level that is, in 12 months. Uh, I'd lived in a different country, learning a different language, driving a different car, learning new tracks. I was never going to excel in the first year. Not, I, and I couldn't put pressure on anyone to do that. Mm. If the second year was that, well, then I can understand. But we never got that opportunity to, to showcase that second year. And that's what really, for me, is a bit of a thorn in the side, that we never got that opportunity. Um, you know, to be honest, I think the team and I say the team, HRT at the time, saw me, saw me as more valuable to them back here in Australia, driving a, a touring car, winning races, hopefully a championship again. And for them, it was more marketable for me to be back here than to, to find the funds to go back to Europe, which 
ultimately end up being. So how do you go when you turn on now and watch a Formula One race? Is there any party that goes? Uh, oh, there is. Uh, I was lucky enough, if you, if you fast forward, I was lucky enough to drive a Formula One car around Bathurst. And, uh, you know, I got to drive a Formula One car. Like that was, you know, for me, I'm, I'm, parts of me are satisfied because I got to drive a Formula One car. Um, never got to race one or be part of a championship, but at least got to drive one. So at least you can say at the end of the day, I could live my dream through that um, and got the ability to do that. And like, to be honest, as you said, you know, being lucky enough to live in Australia, you know, we are very lucky here. You know, we, we can go from state to state, you know, different countries, New Zealand and everything else really easily. When I was in Europe, uh, I remember at the time, Dr. Marco, who was the owner of the team, who hence also is now Red Bull's junior uh, manager. So mm. I've, I've bumped into Dr. Marco many a time since then, but he owned the team that I raced for in Europe. He uh, requested and, and, and sort of a, a strong request for me to, to take Montoya to different racetracks because he didn't have a car at the time or didn't have any transport. And I remember that uh, going, I think it was down to Mugello in Italy to do a, a test down there before the race. And the border crossing, we literally got strip searched. Him being Colombian, every bag, everything out of the car, literally rubber gloves. And right. hence on the return leg, uh, we got back to base, back into Graz in Austria, and I said to Dr. Marco at the time, never again. Never going to take Montoya on another field trip or a racetrack ever again. Then the next meeting, I can't remember where it was, but then he went with the team and, and, the, and the team cargo basically bus that they had. That lasted a meeting because they got the same... Same treatment. Same treatment at the border crossing. And then they got back and said, no more. And in the end, for the last half of the year, he had to get his own way to racetrack. So, um, and then you come back to here and you, you, know, you drive from state to state, no problem at all. And uh, you forget how lucky we are here. Just on Montoya, he was uh, driving in Formula One and that F3000 season when I was working on that. Um, and he went head to head with Nick Heidfeld, um, which would be the year after you're talking about. He was chubby, be fair to say. And there were rumours around him in Formula One that he had to straighten up with what he used to eat, Lounsey, um, before he'd be accepted into the Formula One world. Could you shed any light on that or not? Yeah. Yes? <laughs> was he a man that was very fond of the Golden Arches? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Every country we went to, we had to try McDonald's <laughs> to see if every country was the same ingredients, <laughs> the same burger, the same bun, um, to a point where... And, and absolutely true. Right. And to a point where Sam Michael now consults to the team. Sam Michael was part of the uh, the, the Benetton, uh, sorry, the Williams, the Williams team, the Williams team at the time. And uh, and I remember when Sam first joined our team, uh, I sat down with him. I said, "Oh, how are you going, Sam?" And he knew who I was. And I said, "Ah, you know, uh, an old teammate of mine." And Juan Pablo Montori laughed. And I said, uh, did he still eat McDonald's after I left him in 3000? He said, yes, he done. <laughs> and the Williams team had to put him through almost a, uh, a rehabilitation yes. to get him off the McDonald's because he was fascinated with them. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Like every, as I said, every country, everywhere we went, he had to have it. I'm glad you've confirmed that because in the day in Formula One, that, that was a rumour floating around. Oh, there's no rumour. That, <laughs> so, that is fact. So, mate, you come back. You, you won it in your first crack in uh, 96 and you, uh, yep. uh, in, then you went to Europe and then you won it twice more in a row. So you'd had three full seasons, you'd won three Australian Touring Car Championships, you were starting to win Bathursts. How were you 
perceived by the rough and ready blokes that had been doing this for 10, 15 years prior? Uh, I think it was okay in 98, 99, the second and third year. The first year we got hit from pillar to post. Um, you know, if I do think back on it, the first race was the short track at Eastern Creek. Wayne Gardner made a comment saying that I'll never win a race, let alone a championship, and uh, we proved him wrong on that. Uh, oh, we, we went to Sandown. I think it was a sprint race that year as well as the Endurance 500. I was in. I, I can't remember who was on my left, but I know Dick Johnson was on my right. I was the meat and the sandwich. Whoever was on my left hit me. I ricocheted into Dick. Dick went off the track. He made a comment after the race saying, you know, this young whippersnapper, you know, full of ego, can't drive, basically, all this sort of stuff, but didn't realise it. it wasn't my doing. Um, so, yeah, I think the first year was definitely that. And I don't think it's much different now, no. to be honest. You get, get a rookie that comes into the, into the, into the category yep. and it's all right, you know, you've got to, learn, you've got to earn and learn your stripes. And uh, so for me, it was um, uh, probably 96 was that year. 90, as I said, 98, 99 was more of a, uh, more of a uh, consistent flowing sort of results, a bit more respect. So I started to build a bit more respect with all my peers at the time. And of course, that was almost at a crossover too between, you know, Brock in 96 and the Scaife coming in sort of, uh, you know, 98, 99. Um, and, and to be honest, everyone that at that time said, oh, you're going to deal with Scaife, you know, he's going to mentally screw you. And I said, he's going to be a pussycat compared to what I just dealt with in 97 in Europe with Montoya. Yeah. And, you know, Scaife and I are chalk and cheese, but we have become very good friends because of the, 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 the mutual respect and relationship that we had back in that time. And I had respect for Scaife, there's no doubt about that, but the way I operate and the way he operates is very different. Um, so for me, I was lucky enough uh, to be part of that. I think in 2000, I, rang, I, I paired up with Scaife at Bathurst and Enduros, and I rang Scaife and I remember he was heading to the Melbourne Cup and we'd announced that we were going to leave at the end of that year. Uh, to things... join Ford. I was. Oof. But uh, 2000 was a, was a difficult year because of the, the politics that went on behind the scenes. Because we'd announced we'd left, we were left out of a lot of things from the team. Test days and other things that we didn't, I didn't even know the team were testing. <laughs> we were living in Queensland at the time, so admittedly we were far enough away that we, we didn't know. Um, but I rang Scaife and he, he was on his way to the Melbourne Cup and I said, look, Scaife, we're going to team up. Regardless of where I'm going or what's going in my life, I'm going to give you 110%. Let's go and win Sandown. Let's go and win Bathurst. And, uh, you know, we didn't have such a great year, but, uh, you know, we went and, and it was... He said later on that he, he, he was pleased and um, happy that I made that phone call because he was concerned. You know, people at the time were telling me to go down the main straight of Bathurst, turn right, turn one. Stick it in the wall, and it's like, well, that's not me. I'm not. I'm not like that. You know, regardless of who I'm driving for, where I'm going, if it's a long-term relationship or whatever, I'll give it my best. You know, it's. I'm. I'm not like that. But there, people were telling me to turn right at turn one at Bathurst. So wow. It was. It started to get nasty. Craig Lowndes hasn't driven a race car since Bathurst, but he looked right at home behind a Ford Falcon in his first test session since his highly publicised switch from Holden. After several high-speed laps at the twisty Winton circuit, he was quick to give his impressions on how the Falcon compares to the Commodore. A little bit different, obviously, the structure of the car, the roll cage, the seat position. It, it's going to feel different in that respect, but uh, no, it's got four wheels, a steering wheel and go-around corners. I don't think 
people outside the V8 world have an understanding of the rivalry and the passion between Holden and Ford. We're skipping ahead a bit here. Mm -hmm. You're talking about you went to Ford. What was the worst thing anyone said or did to you as a result of the fact that you'd left Holden and were joining their arch enemy Ford? Well, to be honest, I actually went and sat with Bev and Peter at the time. And I, and I said to him, like, what am I going to expect? Because it was an unknown. And Peter didn't really casually said, you're not going to lose anything. You're going to lose 50% of Holden because they're going to hate you for what you've done. But there's going to be that 50% that still respect you for what you've done for them and the, and the brand. And then you're going to walk into this other world and Ford land and 50% are going to love you because they want you to come over here. The other 50% are going to hate you because you've defected. So at the end of the day, you're not going to lose anything. So you still got your 100%. You still got your 100%. <laughs> it's and good it, advice. And it was true. Like, it was honestly true. Like, we went in there and we had Ford, Ford fans that, that, you know, would call me a traitor and all that, and we had Holden fans that, that hated me for, for, for defecting. How did you deal with that face-to-face? -face? Because we, we, we started this interview by saying, hey, you are with people. Yeah. What would happen when a bloke would lean over the fence and yell, Lanza, you're a traitor, you're a dog, oh, you're a mongrel? I'd just smile at him and just wave. Like, at the <laughs> end of the day, like... I, I don't. I, I'm, I'm a person that really doesn't like uh, confrontation. So for me, it was just a smile and wave and say, like, you know, have a good day. Like, and the passion, like, it's always been there. Never got you once. No, never, never really. No, I've never really been in a, a biter. You're a beautiful, or, beautiful man. <laughs> you are a beautiful man, Craig Lowndes. I know that there was a, um, at the time, through the zero zero and the or the Gibson zero zero era. There was a big, tall gentleman that used to, to travel with us. He was about 6'6", named Daryl Reed. Still very, very good friends with him and, and his wife. Um, to a point where he looks after Greg Norman when he comes out to Australia. Oh, I know Daryl. Big unit. <laughs> big, big unit. unit. Um, what I didn't know was why he was employed. Um, and he used to just get me around and move me around. And of course, you know, as the stature of what he is, it's um, uh, quite easy for him to pick me up literally and put me away. Um, but I believe that it was a very, on good authority, that it was a death threat on my head because I'd moved from Holden to Ford. Wow. So he was literally employed to look after me and, and keep an eye out if there was any psycho psychos that were going to put an eye for me or what were going to, I don't know how they were going to do it or what was going to happen. But, Did you know um, that at the time? Didn't know that at the time. And, and for me, that was, it was like, hi, this is Daryl Reed. He's going to be a minder. He's going to help you get around. But the interaction you have with people at a racetrack, you talked about a knife, and without being too dramatic, look what happened to Monica Sellers. And that's a, that's a very different environment yeah. to you in the V8 paddock, where it's touch and feel. Oh, look, there's been... Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there is that, because we're so accessible to, to the fans... It, it could be quite easily done if someone really had a gripe or a, a, a vendetta on vindicta on on anyone at that point. Mm. And I, I and later in life, if I move forward, uh, I, even to a point where Scaife rang us up, and I hadn't got they hadn't the, the message hadn't got to me from this person, but the message was basically said um, to Scaife, "I'm going to kill you and Craig." And I'd move. I was in Fordland at that point, and. Ultimately, they tracked him down by his phone calls, or the police did, and arrested him. Um, to a point where he served time in jail for it. Um, and again, it was oblivious to me until Scaife told me the full story. And, and literally, 
Tour T, Scaife was walking back to his car at QR, and the QR, the, the, the car park is in with everyone else. Queensland Raceway. Queensland Raceway. And he actually said, he was walking with a, with a guy, it was just having a nice old chat, and he said, I'm the guy that you, you put away in jail. So he'd actually then come and confronted Scaife about it. Gee. And yeah, Scaife wasn't happy, um, obviously. Um, nothing, nothing went of it after that. But yeah, there, look, there is, there's, that, there's definitely that opportunity. And, and so, going back to the Daryl Reed situation is, yeah, like he was employed to look after me and be my minder, and that's what he did. And, and there's, you know, in consequences, we're we're great mates now, and uh, we have a laugh and a joke and uh, talk about what was what, when it, what, what back then. Before you went to Holden, uh, before you went to Ford, that championship year, the, the third championship. Um, Quite impressed by my back knowledge here at the moment, Andy. I'm working really hard to make sure I don't stuff <laughs> this up because you know it's not my area of expertise. Round eight at Sandown. Round eight at Calder. Calder, where you had that enormous crash. Calder, yeah? Yeah, in June, yep. Round eight. And it's funny because I walk through your house now and in one of your rooms there's nine different angles of that crash. And the commentary... That's back in Mark Osler and Lee Diffie and Barry Sheen. Barry didn't actually know what to say. Mm. Probably one of the biggest V8 crashes we've ever seen, if not the biggest. Um, made news all around the world. And Stephen Richards, the outside. Oh, that was a break. Oh, oh, look, oh at this. No, look at that. That's so tender. Who's got it? Craig Lowndes. Oh, oh, my oh, goodness God, me. That's a nasty... Oh, whoa, Craig Lowndes, car one, our championship leader. You could see there was a contact there between two cars. It set off a chain reaction. And our championship leader, Craig wow. Lowndes, one of the wins cars. Stephen Richards, boy, oh boy. And you mentioned at the start you'd, you'd hurt your leg. And I presume that was that particular incident where there was that moment where the other drivers raced to you and the television audience thought, is Craig Lowndes dead? And that's not being too dramatic, I don't think. No, 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 no. I, I remember, yeah. I still remember it clear as day. Look at the drivers running. Yeah. Garth Tander is there, Greg Murphy. The, all these guys are friends. Crompton in there. They're all concerned for their uh, fellow competitors' safety and welfare. They are all rushing in there to his aid. I, I put the crash down to me getting a really crappy start. Yeah. I got a real bad start. I was on the on the front row with Scaife. You did. You, you um, stuffed it at the start. Yeah, I did. I bogged it down. Well. Couldn't get it going. Finally got it going. I remember about to go from third to fourth in the gearbox. It was old H-pattern back then. Uh, then there was contact on the left-hand rear wheel, which uh, was uh, Ingle, for memory, because Ingle, Garth, and Stevie Richards were all coming together. They were all having their own jostle and battle, and um, uh, yeah, car. Uh, it could be, could be actually. I may even think about it. Might even be Stevie Richards. Now that car has left the track at at close to 200 kilometres an hour. You would say that is. Very, very, very nasty, and we just keep our fingers crossed and hope that uh, Craig's all right. The car made contact with the left rear of mine, and then it hit the car with such a force that it put it up on two wheels. And what happened at that at that sort of time of the year was that we were using blow-off valves in the rims to, to, to make a, a consistent tyre pressure. So you could start the tyre pressure higher, these little blow-off valves would blow off at a certain pressure, keep a constant um, tyre pressure, and go racing. Category at the time banned them because they were too inconsistent, everything else, people weren't using them properly. So hence why we had to start the tyre lower so they could grow and build over mm. the race. So this is the start of the race, tyre pressures are low. As soon as the car went up on two wheels, it actually plucked the tyres off the rim, both, both front and rear. 
Then the rim dug into the bitumen. Car went onto its roof at that point. Uh, I remember, I would, and I still always have always, I don't know why, but it, it's something in my brain, and I think it's probably my father, I've always worn a full face helmet with a visor. Because as soon as it went on the roof, the front windscreen shattered and a glass went all over me. But luckily it had you know, everything protected. Uh, at that point, as I said, I was about to go from third to fourth in the gearbox, about I think it was 160 or 70 kilometres an hour from what I remember the, the team downloading it. Um, I was skidding on my roof and at that point I was actually quite calm because was, I was in one motion. I was upside down, but mm. I was in one motion, skidding. And I, can, and I still you know, shut my eyes and I can still see the sparks and hear the noise of the, of the, of the roof grinding away on the bitumen. You will see a photo, if anyone has a photo of it, there would be brake lights illuminated. I had my right leg planted on the brake pedal to push myself into the seat. Uh, at that time, we didn't have hands device, so I took my hands off the steering wheel because they weren't going to do anything. They're going to be like rudders. Um, put them on my helmet to protect my neck. Um, what I didn't protect was my left leg. So once the car started to, to once it caught the the, um, the the dirt and it started to roll, the inertia of it, it, it it's twofold. The inertia, the rolls were good to it, it. It spent a lot of its energy doing the rolls instead of having a sudden thud or a stop, yeah. which was beneficial for me. Um, but with the rollovers, because of the seat braces basically from the top of your knee all the way to your neck, the lower part of my leg, I didn't brace. So literally from my knee to my ankle was whipping side to side and it tore all the ligaments off both sides of my knee. And once it come, up to, once it come to a stop, upside down, a rest on, the, on, on, again, luckily that last bounce tripped it up onto the concrete wall. Um, I remember my left knee throbbing to buggery, my right elbow throbbing, and the window nets were only introduced that year. So I'm very lucky because if that window net wasn't there, I don't know if I'd have a right arm because what had happened is on the rollover, my, my arm had went to go out the window and the window net caught it and my elbow hit the ground, the bitumen, um, which ended up being a bruised, just a bruised bone, which was fine. But then of course my, my left knee was, was just throbbing and I was upside down Stupid me, I radioed to the guys and said, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm all good. Hence, I'd, I'd ground the, uh, the aerial off the roof when I was upside down, so they didn't hear a thing. <laughs> I loosened, <laughs> I'd loosened the, uh, the seat belt, and again, stupid me, I was upside down. Basically, hit the roof of the car. <laughs> By this stage, I got myself up the right way inside the car, but then I, I could hear Murph. And Greg was the first to the car. Like, he was yelling he, and screaming. He, he jumped out of his car he and raced over alongside across. Garth. And yep, i never seen Murph run so fast. And um, he'd ripped the door open and uh, you could see I was all right. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm all right, Murph, I'm all right. And then helped me get through the car with Garth. Uh, there was Johnny Faulkner, Neil Crompton. Uh, who else was there? Uh, I know there was one other person, but he wasn't on the on driver's side. Um, I think there was a couple others. I think it might have been Larko. And a few others. Like there was people there, drivers there that that either their cars were damaged in the whole incident, or they were just worried. And so Murph and Garth helped me escape, get out of the car through the passenger side. And uh, there was Larry Perkins, but Larry Perkins was on the front, opposite side, looking at all our suspension points at that time because the car was upside down. <laughs> get him yeah. intel, Larry. So the only thing he was missing <laughs> with his notepad and a pen. <laughs> and a tape measure to measure it all. <laughs> Come on, Larry. So LP was there, and we've had a laugh and a joke about it since then. But, yeah, Murph got me out of the car, um, and that's when I did the big thumbs up. I think the thumbs up are all big okay. Yeah. Um, they took me to the hospital, they checked my knee out, I, and they realised that I'd done my ligaments in my knee, and um, I got back. I, I, and they're going to just um, let me um, out of the hospital. 
And I said, well, knowing I'm a quite active person, I said, can you at least put a brace on it or do something to support the knee? And they said, oh, yeah, okay. So I put me in a brace. I actually went back to the racetrack that afternoon and uh, you know showed people. And, and it was, wasn't advised to do that, but I wanted to go back and show people that I was okay. You know, I'm still here. Um, that's going to take more than that to get rid of me. So, um, yeah, I went back. And then actually after that, the, the, which probably most people don't really realise and know that uh, Scaife got me into the um, Bandura Medical Centre and um, and Julian, Dr. Julian Fowler. Mm. He's the gentleman that did the operation on, on my knee. But it, what happened is that I went in there, he um, sat me on a bed, he put his hand on the inside of my knee with his other hand, he grabbed me outside of my ankle and he could move my ankle, my lower leg like this. And he said, yeah, you've definitely done something. So I don't know how bad it is until we do an arthroscope, get in there, have a look, clean it up and fix it, basically. So I rang up the team at the time and gave them the scenario. And the team said, no, we don't want you to have the operation until the end of the year. And then I said, well, I then went back to the doctor and I said, okay, this is a scenario. What's gonna happen later in life if I don't have the operation now? And he said, uh, well, ligaments or whatever is attached will mend and they'll be, that, that'll be it. Um, if I do it now, you know, if I find something that needs to be replaced, so I can replace it now, it'll mend and you won't have a problem later in life, so good to do it. So I went against team orders at that time. You leading the championship at this stage? I was leading the championship at that time. So you said, nah, let's get the operation. Well, I was more focused on 15 years down the track, yeah. not, not 15 minutes. And so I went home, packed a bag, went back to the doctor's surgery that afternoon and they put me under the knife and uh, I woke up the next morning with, uh, with drains out of my knee and legs and everything else and took me another six months in re recovery. Were you disappointed that the team were looking from where I'm sitting at the short term rather than thinking about you in the long term? I was at the time and hence why I went against it and I think that uh, I still don't regret the decision and I think that um, because the races were so fast between that I missed a round. The round that I missed was Tasmania um, absolutely teeming down with rain. Cameron uh, McConville filled in for me. And I remember sitting at home, I, we had a house in Melbourne at the time, sitting at home laughing and giggling to myself <laughs> that I, the only race that I've missed all year was the one that absolutely was, was teeming down with rain and uh, thankfully I wasn't there. So between that and the next one, the next round after that was Winton. I had, uh, I think from memory, four weeks to get basically rehabbed as fast as I could. I was in hyperbaric chambers, I was swimming, I was doing everything and anything I could to fast track the rehab uh, to a point where I got to a stage where uh, I felt like I was, I was capable of driving. So to get the CAMS medical back again, I had to prove to them that I could, could weight bear it. Um, all I had to do was walk across the workshop floor and then climb up onto a, onto a bench. That was it? That was it. So that was basically simulating, getting, if I was stopped on the racetrack, that I could get out of the race car, walk across the paddock, and climb over the tie barrow, which I did, and I got the tick of approval. And, uh, and then, of course, after that, we still weren't sure about the starts because the clutch was obviously a big issue. So the team then asked all the other teams to try and um, get a hand clutch like a motorbike on the steering wheel. Every other team denied that. Of course they did. But anyway, we got on. We, uh, we went racing. Last week on the Howie Games, the voice of Rugby League, a man who always wanted to commentate, Ray Warren. And that's when I had to go to the superintendent and I said to him, I've been offered the chance to do in life what I always wanted to do. Uh, and he said, what's that? I said, I want to be a sports commentator. And I said, I, I dream of one day being Ken Howard. 
And he said, who's Ken Howard? And I said, well, he's the, the greatest race caller of all time. So he deliberated uh, for about five seconds and <laughs> he said, go with my blessing, you know. He said, he, said, I, he said, I've watched you closely. He said, I don't think, I don't think this is your job, really. He said, and, and good luck. The man universally known as Rabs, Ray Warren, last week on the Howie Games. In previous series, we have mentioned private Howie Games podcasts. If you have loved ones, friends, someone that has inspired you, or someone close to you whose story you want to be recorded for posterity, please send us an email at thehowiegames at hotmail.com. That's Howie, H-O-W-I-E, thehowiegames at hotmail.com. We'll try and organise for me to sit down and have a chat, just like a normal episode. It's not for broadcast, but for a family memory. Back to Lanzi. We've just talked about the fact that you'd been physically allowed to get in the car. Did yep. you have any mental reservations? Um, we always talk about getting back on the horse or back on the push bike. Easy uh, to say. Easy to say. To be honest... Um, I had to drive. I had to drive with the brace on my knee to support my knee because I still didn't have enough strength, or the ligaments weren't good enough. So they had to modify the race suit to go over the brace, which was quite unusual. But we got it in, did the race. So right through practice, qualifying, and even the first race. I think from memory, there was a three-race program back then. I didn't want to be in the car. I said I, I want to get back in it, but I didn't. Want, I physically, mentally, weren't ready to get back in the car. You know, I was worried about other cars around me, touching, paneling, all that, you know, banging and paneling and all that sort of stuff. And it wasn't until after the first race had concluded that I got really comfortable again. I was like, oh, no, this is all right, no, okay. this is fine. But it took me most of that weekend to get mentally strong enough that knowing that we can get back to where we were. And which I, I, I look at now like the, the accident that Chaz Mostert's had at Bathurst and big ones like that. Like, that's a big thing to mentally get over, and, and I, I can feel for him in that in that regard. How did you find out that your great mate and mentor, Peter Brock, had died, Craig? Um, on big occasions, you remember where it was, what had happened, where you were. Um, I just got back home at that point where I was living from a function. I remember it was an early start, so I'd laid down, and I remember the phone just constantly ringing. Absolutely just did not stop. And um, and then I got told at the time that rumours are that he'd passed in a car rally accident, and I'm like, mm, that can't be true. Like, not you know, Peter was better than that. Yep. And then you turn the, the TV on. Of course, the rumour mills, every TV station was running stories, and then I can't remember what station it was had the had the, the overview, had the vision of the car wrapped around the tree, and then it, and then it was confirmed. Uh, and at that point, uh, actually, there was three choppers that come and land on the on the on the property, and I got choppered back to a um, TV station, and then we we all got basically not all, but Jason Bright, myself, um, uh, and a lot of others that got interviewed at the time, basically within a matter of hours after that, it got told that um, you know, what had happened, and, and basically sharing stories of, of who he was and how he meant to us. I was in a newsroom at the time, and because I was working on motorsport, they asked me to go on, gave me an address at Bev's, and said, go and knock on her door mm. and ask her reaction. And I was feeling physically ill. Mm. And I said to the camera on the way, I'm not doing this. Mm. And we drove around 45 minutes and went back. So one of the few times I've ever lied at work mm. and said, no, she didn't answer the door. Um, Cause it, just felt so wrong. 
oh, to go and do that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. How did you deal with the media and the death of an Australian icon, but a mate to you? It took a while to sink in, to be honest. And I remember you know, TV reporters came to home, and, and we and I, I think I said at the time that I'll never do a rally because at that point it impacted me so much of what he was doing when he died. Um, and, and look, people will remember, you know, him for who he is. Uh, you know, he was for me. He was he was a good friend. Even when he sort of semi-retired and he's still racing, he'd always come up and talk to us, you know, back of the garage and, and ask me what we're doing, what's going on. Um, I remember going to Melbourne, going to the funeral, the state funeral, and there was a massive amount of people. Mm. Like, it flooded out the door. You know, you look around the room and there was just so many old faces that, that were part of HRT, his early days, HDT, um, his own team. Um, and then to see, you know, the kids, the family, all that there, um, you know, I, I don't know how Neil got through his speech at the time. Um, Crompton. Yeah, Neil Crompton. Um, it, it was really emotional and moving because of, he touched so many people's hearts, but not only in motor racing. Like, he, he, went, he went to the Olympics as a mentor to athletes, just purely a mentor. He transcended his sport and went... He was, yeah. And for me, the, the, the long, you know, I, I still can remember going to corporate functions and he'd be talking about 1972, the Tirana at lap 145. Um, you know, started to get a bit of a whine in the, in the gearbox, so I double clutched it from then on in and just, and I'd be at awe because I'm like, I wasn't born. Hmm. I was born in 74, not 72. Hmm. And, then, um, and then we went to Bathurst in memory two weeks later which was always going to be hard and we always said, we said, we said as a collective group, as a team, that we're going to basically shut that door at the, at the beginning of the weekend because we want to go there and win the race. We don't want to get caught up in, in all the, the, the memories and hypes, but it was hard not to because of the people and why we were there. I think we did a pretty good job until it's the morning of that we drove the Tirana, the 72 Tirana, which he talked so fondly of, that I got to drive around the mountain and I was going to do it regardless, but Ford gave me approval to drive the car, which was pretty unique at the time because, you know, we were a Ford team. We defected from GM, mm. um, but they allowed me to drive the Tirana on the parade lap behind James Brock. And we're starting with the Tirana XU1, driven by Craig Lowndes. And then to park it up on, on the main straight, to have the minute of silence, which for me was... was uh, I don't want to say the word deathly eerie but it was so silent there wasn't a bird chirping there was n there, there was huge amount of respect there was not one not even a baby crying in the in the grandstand there was just nothing and it for me it, it, it blew me that that what moved me the most and then Bev came up and gave me a hug um, and said Peter be proud and we walked back to the garage and, um, and I had tears coming down my face and, and Roland said to me at the time, oh, we'll, we'll get Jamie to start. And I said, no, no. We want to have, show respect. We're going to start and finish this race. And at the time, we weren't the fastest car. Um, Scaife was on pole. I think Bridie was beside him on the front row. They were the two dominant cars at the time. Scaife had 
blew the clutch up on the start line, got taken out of the race. Something happened to Bridie, got taken out of the race, and all of a sudden, for us, and I'm not superstitious, but we, things went our way. We, we ended up leading the race, and with whatever, 10, 12 laps to go, we had this great battle with Rick Kelly, and, and that's exactly what I needed to keep my focus until the end. And then to cross the line with a gap of 0.05 between Rick and I, it's just unbelievable. Like, it's just, hmm. um, yeah, can't believe it. This will be a huge outpouring of emotion. Ten years in the waiting. Lowndes and Windcup do it. That is an incredible moment. And Windcup fist pumping on the wall. Lowndes has done it on the day he farewelled his friend. To stand on the podium, to be presented with a trophy by his brother Phil, um, they're the memories that you want to remember Peter by and, and what he stood for. The handing over of the Peter Brock Perpetual Trophy and there is no more fitting a recipient than his young mentor, or the man he mentored I should say, Craig Lowndes and Jamie Wincup, winners of the Super Jeep Auto 1000. The special Peter Brock Trophy to be presented by Philip Brock, fittingly representing the Brock family. I don't know if you're a a spiritual man. Mick Fanning talks about the death of his brother and when he won his first world championship that he felt he was not in a corny way but he was there some way with him almost looking over his shoulder is the way Mick described it. Did you have any of that type of feeling in the car? Uh, I had a strange feeling. I, I really can't describe it. I did have a, a strange feeling and, and I did talk to myself about, you know, especially at times when Things were tough at the early beginnings of the race. Um, later in the race, when we had a great battle with Rick, basically saying, come on, mate, you know, give me a hand here. Let's, let's get this across the line. So, uh, you know, so I'm not superstitious. Um, I'm not a non-believer, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sort of neutral. Um, but I, I, it's hard to look back and not think that he had some part of that race. Mm. With what went on during the day, um, the gap at the end, we raced under clouds the whole day, pretty much, until the, I turned the corner of the last lap and the sun, just this, I remember this sun peering through the clouds and this big beam of light comes straight down the main straight. So, yeah, I, I, I do believe he was part of that, yeah. Craig, you've won six Bathursts. Um, you've won three titles. Um, you've won more than 100 races. The flip side of that is you've come second in the championship, I think, six times. Yeah. Six times? Yeah, so, as good as you are, more often than not, you get beaten. How do you deal with defeat? Um, oh, for me, it, it just, we weren't good enough on the day. Um, and I remember in early days, really early days, probably even back to go-kart days, that I, can't, I think it was my dad that said to me, look, you know, doesn't matter how far you go or what you do, there's always going to be someone better. Which I think for me, the worth ethic to try and be the best is always being the back of my brain. And, and you know, when Jamie came along, you know, he was fast, he made mistakes. He'd already had an opportunity with Gary Rogers and he sacked him because he thought he was a dud. <laughs> Good decision, <laughs> that one. <laughs> I'm sure Gary regrets it, but it's... Um, uh, when Jamie came along, he, he, he brought a different level to the game. And, and, you know, and the team, I think, either knew that or embraced that. Uh, he was brought in to be my co-driver in the early days because we were the same similar height and weight. Um, and we did like the car very similar. 
And then he found his own rhythm and own groove and he went on, you know, and he's, he reminds me a lot of Scaife. He works bloody hard behind the scenes with the data or, or analysing anything and everything. Um, and maybe that's where that's my downside and my detriment that I don't do enough of that, which, you know, this year we're doing a lot more of it. I think it's proving to be a better thing. But, um, you know, finishing second to Jamie those many times, at the end of the day, the championship's over consistency of the year. Mm. Um, and you ask him, he'll always put championship over Bathurst. No, I, I deny it. I always put Bathurst over that because Bathurst for me is getting it right on the day, six and a half hours or whatever the length it is, co-driver, team, strategy, anything and everything can happen over that time. Um, but then he would argue about the, the 15 races we have or rounds we have during the year that you've got to get every one of them right and be consistent. So th- there's both obviously values in, in both ways. But um, but no, I, I, I don't... Um, I don't regret it, to be honest. Weber talks about having to fly on a private jet with Vettel back from Brazil when they'd been battling for the championship with a couple of others and Vettel won it and Mark talks about how difficult that was. What's it like for you when your teammate standing on the podium just won the championship and you oh, haven't? Oh, look, you'd be lying if you said you weren't a bit devastated, um, especially if you finished fourth. <laughs> you're you're yeah. one spot off the podium, um, but you look at the end of the day. As I said, I, I, you, I've learned to embrace that side of it because of you are a team. Regardless whether you win or lose, you are a part of a team. And um, for the team element and the team morale, that you got to have a brave face and, and support your teammate. Because he's, a, he's, as I said, he's probably done better than you on the day, whether it's either strategy, you've had bad luck, or something's happened to your car, or whatever's happened. He's done a better job on the day. But do you ever, you talk about a brave face, behind the beautiful, smiling man that you are, and I know that's you, I, <laughs> I know it's not a front, um, do you ever kick doors or get mad at yourself or go, what if? It, does it ever get on top of this <sighs> wonderful person that you are? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't lie and say I don't, but I do, yeah, all the time. Right. I think, but I, I've learned to do it behind the closed doors of a transporter or, yep. and the same token, you know, even Lara. Lara will kick me up the backside and say, you know, pull your head out. Like, yes, you're upset because this has happened, whatever, but you're still driving a race car. You're still getting paid to do what you do and enjoy it. You still get to uh, travel the world in doing what you're doing and getting paid for it. Um, and you've got great supporters out there. So, um, you know, learn from, your mis- learn from your mistakes. Like, we're all human. We do make mistakes at times or we make a bad decision, but you learn from it. And I think that the biggest change from last year to this year is that, you know, because Lara being a, a, um, a change manager and a consultant, that, that really at the end of, the year, end of last year, I had to sit back and analyse what went wrong. What, what process is we not doing that doesn't allow me to do what I need to do? Mm. And and whether I could have used that information ten years ago, <laughs> which probably would have been good. Yeah. Um, but even now, like we sat down and we analysed last year, we put our hands up and say it was a, it was a terrible year, terrible year. And I've had probably two or three of those years in my career that you just have a really lean year. It's really bad. Things go wrong. You work you're working your ass off, whether it's fitness or training or anything else, but just results don't come. So then you go, okay, well. If we do that same thing next year, it's going to be the same result. So how do we then dissect that 
and she's mad for a spreadsheet. <laughs> so Queen we, of Excel, is she? Yep. So we stuck it in a spreadsheet of results and, and, and then we analyse each meeting of why. Why wasn't the car good enough? What, what, what was my input that didn't help that car get to where it needed to be? And then the relationship between Johnny McGregor or Irish and myself, that's fused and bonded much better now than what it was 12 months ago. He was thrust into it at the end of uh, 16 when Ludo decided to leave um, in New Zealand. And I remember being in New Zealand at Pukekohe and he, and literally we got the news that Ludo was leaving and, and Irish was going to step up. He was my data analyst at the time anyway. He just was going to be stepped up as my engineer. And he actually said to me, he said, we, mate, this is going to be a terrible weekend. I said, I'm green, I I'm, I'm, don't know what to do. Let's make the end of the racing at the last race better than where we started now. And we did. And that was our goal then. Now our goal is to be on the podium. So we've come a long way and, I've, I've, and I'm proud to be able to work with Irish and use my, uh, I suppose, experience to try and help him get there and motivate him to, to keep less pushing on and believing in himself. Because it, I think the biggest difference between last year and this year is he probably didn't believe in himself enough to the decisions he wanted to make. We, we were so common at the end of a, on a Sunday night, sitting at the airport, we'd have a debrief or, you know, from the weekend, he goes, oh, no, I, I should have done that roll centre. I, I knew it. I knew it. It would have fixed that problem we had in the race. But I just didn't have my gut feel. My gut feeling was there, but I didn't have belief in my gut to do it. Where now it's like, no, no, we can either do this, this and this, but that's going to do that, that's going to do that, that's going to do that. Which one do you reckon? And mm. we then talk about it and go through it. And I go, no, that one's going to be the one I reckon we're going to work. So now we do it. Do you learn more as one of Australia's most celebrated athletes from winning or from losing, personally? Uh, I reckon more for losing. Do you? Um, and I think it's more also the attitude. It's not. It's it's a it's a, a greater greater learning of of how to deal with failure, how to pick yourself up mentally, physically, emotionally, um, how to how to then bounce back that next meeting and, and be confident enough that. Um, and there's been plenty of times this year where um, take the race at uh, Perth on the Sunday. We qualified last row, mm. but we both knew the car was capable of a top six. You know, we should have qualified in the top six. We knew that. Like, we had then the belief of, okay. And I said to him, and he now uses the cliche, I said to him, you call the shots and I'll drive the wheels off this thing and see, let's see where we get to. And we ended up on the podium. And, and the car was brilliant. But it, 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 it wasn't a surprise that the car was brilliant. We knew it was going to be. But it was just the fact that we qualified so badly. And so then, then having now the belief in yourself. But, yeah, the, the failures are what you learn you learn the most from. If you won everything, you wouldn't mm. be learning anything. Well, yeah, certainly at the start, that's what you did. You did win everything, eh, mate? <laughs> You've been so good with your time. I've only got a, a couple more questions for you. Um, you've mentioned your beautiful wife a couple of times and your kids, Levi mm. and Chili. How do you approach being a father? Uh, look, to be honest, it is difficult um, because we travel so much. Um, and, and I see a lot of the kids going through what I went through with dad being away with motor racing and I wanted to be a motorbike rider and then go-karter and at times he wasn't around so as I said mum or my brother would take me. Um, so I'm pretty conscious of that and I'm trying to be around as much as I can and uh, you know Levi's starting to race dirt bikes and he's you know unfortunately really talented. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. <laughs> Now any good sponsors? You guys about to say you have to keep driving for a couple of years yet, then. So he's um, he's taken in my footsteps in in the competitive nature of that side of it, and he is damn good. Like I, 
how far he goes, and I'm not pushing him to be anyone. I don't want him to be a Chad Reed or anyone else. I just want him to be a Levi. If he wants to keep going and be what he wants to do, that's fine. Um, and so, yeah, trying to be more conscious of being there as much as we can. Uh, but then that, as they're getting older, they appreciate that I travel so much as well for motorway, and it's my job. Um, and Chili's here growing up to be a young girl. Um, she's into horse riding and wants to battle race. So, <laughs> so they're both into horse power in completely different opposite fields. And uh, I'm not sure which one's the most expensive at the moment, but, um, it, but they've got their own drive. And, 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 and to be honest, they've been through a lot too, growing up through school with the Lowndes name, uh, both been sort of bullied a bit through that because of what I do. Um, Kids have given them a hard time about that. Give them a that. hard time at school, yeah, because of, you know, your, your dad's a famous race driver and you, you know, get this and you get that or, you know, whatever. And so they've, they've seen that side of it. Um, the schools have been really good to deal with that side of it. Um, but then the same token is, you know, they've also understanding that sometimes people want to know them because of their name, not because of who they are. And so they've, they've grown up sort of seeing both sides of the good and the bad of being famous or having a name out there. So um, I don't give them credit, they're, they're, they're growing up really well. Um, but same with Lara, like, you know, uh, when we got together, it's, uh, you know, for me, it's, it was uh, great chemistry. She's a bit of a polar opposite to me, very highly, uh, highly organised. I'm the unorganised one, mm. um, which, which helps me in my life, um, getting organised. As I said, she's mad for a spreadsheet. Um, so, you know, even uh, doing our annual trip to Bathurst, every kilometre is counted and knowing how far we, how long it should take and <laughs> if it takes longer, I'm in trouble. Um, but it's, it's, um, but the chemistry between Lara and I work. So she got her own job and her own, own um, career, but yet she spent time in World Rally. So she understands my side of the world and, and what I need to do to be where I am and what I do or to go training in the morning or whatever I do. Um, so for me, I've, I'm sort of lucky in both both ways that she's got her own career and her own life and we uh, always, well, she made a point and I, I agree with her, I don't sit beside her on her desk and she doesn't sit beside me in a race car, which for me that'd be another 55 kilos of, uh, of extra weight. 53. Yeah, 53. 53. Um, so it's, um, but yeah, like, you know, and, and again, because we've got so diverse um, lifestyles, it, it comes together very well. What's it like when your personal life is played out in the media, which has happened to you, unfortunately? Uh, look, it has, good and bad, and I've got, to, I've got to put my hand up. I think 99% of it's all been good. I think there's been occasions you always get bad, doesn't matter what you do. Social media, like at the moment, from when I first started in motor racing to when I know now, social networking is so vastly different. Mm. Everyone's either on Twitter, Instagram, Snapchatting, whatever. Like, if you burp now, you know it tomorrow, like you know it's then. Like, it used to be like days down the yeah. track. So the, the, the social world and the media world has very vastly changed from when I first started. So you've had to embrace that. And I think that the good thing about supercars is when the Twitter side of it all came about is, is basically getting all the drivers together and, and showing the pros and cons of good and the bad. You know, not posting something bad that, that ultimately gets spread around the world. Like that. Like that. Do you get negative? You wouldn't get negative. Oh yeah, we get negative. Really? Yeah, yeah especially after the end of last year at Newcastle. Clouds, if he passes McLaughlin, he's off! He's made a mistake, Lowndes down the inside! The haters will, will be vocal about, you know, that I turned into the wall to give Scotty a penalty. Like, 
the end of the day, the, the, the accident happened. Mm. Unfortunately for Scotty, it ended up the result it did. Um, but it happened, like it was motor racing. I, I, for me, but yeah, I got you know, people calling me all sorts of things on social network and everything else. And to a point where we then put a post out and said, look, appreciate everyone can have an opinion, but make it a, a constructive one, mm. not a personal attack. Because that becomes then bullying and, and, and you know, we've already seen too many fatalities in, in the general public about kids getting bullied to a point where they take their own lives. And I definitely don't stand for that. So, you know, we hit back a couple of times on some people and I actually replied to one of them and said, mate, I hope you can say it to my face one day. Mm. Instead of being a keyboard warrior mm. and sitting there and, and, and having an opinion about someone you have no idea what my, what my life's all about or what I do, you only know part of my life because of what the media portray it to be. You don't know who I am. No. So it, it, it can be um, very hard at times. I just want to finish this by, I'm sure you have people come up to you all the time and say, Lounsey, I was there when this happened and tell you their stories about you. I want to finish with one with my favourite Craig Lounge story. And you've been wonderful. Over the years, as I say, you are the best. You get out of the car and if I didn't know where you'd come, I wouldn't know from your response whether you'd won or whether you'd come last, which I think is extraordinary and a credit to you. You, myself and Jamie went on a Domino's pizza <laughs> promotion <laughs> to the back blocks of Adelaide, Adelaide, delivering pizzas to unknown punters. <laughs> and we knocked on a bloke's door and he couldn't come all the way out. Of his front door. He could only go to the front gate. You can obviously remember this. Do you remember why? He had an ankle bracelet on. <laughs> he did. He obviously was in a house arrest. <laughs> Correct. And as soon as he saw the TV cameras, <laughs> yes. he thought, holy... This current affair. <laughs> which I think from memory, he, shut, he slammed the door. <laughs> he he, I could, he, we could hear him run back in the house. I don't know what he was hiding or moving. He thought he was going to get raided again. <laughs> he did. And then he came to the front gate and he said, oh, I can't, I can't, because we wanted to get some shots of me in front of the Domino's shark car. <laughs> he sort of said, oh, I can't go past the gate. And, we, and then we all noticed he had a flashing ankle bracelet. <laughs> and he would have been breaking whatever conditions he had, Craig. Yeah, that was a moment. Jamie and I often talk about that with some of the promotions that we've done through sponsorship and our sponsors. That has to be one of the craziest ones we've done. And actually from that point, we asked Domino's to try and uh, vent some of the calls just so we weren't going to some strange place that we weren't coming back from. That is my favourite Craig Lounge moment. May there be plenty more of them, mate. Great to have a chat with you. You're a star. <laughs> Thank you. Good on you, mate. Ah, what a ripping, ripping fella Craig Lowndes is. He's a diamond. Thanks to Lowndes and his wife, Lara. By the way, there's a few Howie Games guests racing at Bathurst this week. There's Craig plus James Courtney, episode 34, who is teaming up with episode 7, Jack Perkins. The perfect result for the Howie Games, Craig in a dead heat with Jack and James. That'd be nice. I did invite MJ to Bathurst. He laughed at me. Hmm. But we still love him anyway, and we love you all for listening. Until next Thursday with Cyril Rioli. Peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try.
Listener.